Good morning. We are glad you are here today. We hope you've had a great weekend so far. And we get to start a new week with God's people worshiping God together, just like God's people have done for 2,000 years. If you're visiting with us, thank you for being here. Uh, we always like our visitors to know who we're trying to be here at Great Oaks. We're trying to simply be Christians. We put Church of Christ on the sign because we are trying to just be followers of Jesus Christ. We think those are the right goals. We're trying our best to simply open the Bible and do what God wants His people to do. And so if you have questions about Christianity, or if you have questions about Great Oaks, please let us know. We are trying to help each other follow Jesus Christ. We think it's the most important thing in the world, and we would love uh, for you to join us in that goal. And so if we can help you in any way, please let us know. Uh, for that matter, a visitor or member, there are people in this auditorium you probably don't know. Before you leave today, just say hi to somebody you don't know. Uh, we don't want to just be passing each other and never say hi. The fact that we're here worshiping together says we're all trying to draw closer to God. So let's make sure we're encouraging each other as we go. A few things we're excited about before we jump into our lesson today. Miss Anna Hudson, could you stand up just a second, Miss Anna, and let everybody, or wave at everybody. It's up to you. If you just want to sit there and wave, you could do that too. This is Miss Anna Hudson, uh, who let our elders know weeks ago that she'd like to be part of the Great Oaks Church family. Miss Anna, we are glad you're here. If you want to have a seat, I'll share a few things about you. So Miss Anna grew up in several East Tennessee communities, bounced around at several different places uh, over there. Her dad was a dairy farmer. Uh, she became a Christian in her middle school years while they were living in Cumberland County. She went on to go to UT Knoxville, where she met Jim, who had become her husband, married for many years before he passed a few years ago. She studied home economics in college. She worked as a teacher. She has three boys. One of those boys is our own Don Hudson. So we have wanted someone to tell us Don Hudson stories, and our, our person has come. So we can sit down with Miss Anna and find out all that we need to know about Don. Um, but uh, she's obviously done a great job with Don. Don's one of our elders here, uh, if you don't know Don Hudson, if you're visiting with us. Her favorite hobby has always been reading, and she also enjoys doing seamstress projects. And one thing you will find out very quickly when you talk to Miss Anna, she loves the church and has been a big part of her life, her entire life. And so, Miss Anna, we're really glad you're here. Um, if you haven't had the chance to meet her yet, please do that. Now, God keeps blessing us with, with good people. And we want to keep encouraging each other as we go. We've also been taking August to try to highlight a few things that we have coming up in these early months of the fall semester. Things we want everybody to be part of if you can. And so one thing we talked about two weeks ago was our Bible study small groups. We're getting those organized. If you want to sign up for those, uh, next Sunday night is when we will meet our Bible study small groups for the coming year. Those are men's groups, women's groups. Let us know if you have questions about that. It's a great way to get connected uh, meeting once a month with your Bible study small group. We talked last week about our upcoming Bible class emphasis day. We hope you can be part of that. So that is three weeks from today, three weeks from this morning. We hope you can come for our 9 a.m. Bible classes. We'll even have breakfast from 8 to 8.45 to help encourage that. We're hoping to set a new record for Bible classes on that day, hopefully 500 people if possible. Please plan to be part of that. We've mentioned that last week. So this morning I wanted to highlight... Um, our upcoming in September, big celebration for our church family. Ten years of being a bilingual church family. If you've been here for those ten years, if you're like me, it doesn't feel like it's been ten years, but it has been ten years since we began the bilingual worship, or since we began Spanish worship services every week, Spanish Bible classes every week, and became a bilingual church family. That has been great. It is uh, souls have come to Christ through Spanish speaking outreach in this community. 
I think we've all deepened our sense of Christian unity and fellowship through that. And so we're going to celebrate this in two parts uh, next month. First of all, we have a church picnic every year in the fall, every year in September. And so we're going to do that again. We'll say more about that as it gets closer. But part of the church picnic, and everybody we've told this to says this is a great idea. Part of the church picnic is from all the different countries that we have represented, especially in our Hispanic group, they're going to set up different booths around the gym with Honduran food and Peruvian food and Costa Rican food. And that sounds amazing to me. I don't know how you feel about that. We will also have all the usual stuff. We'll have American food, which will probably be barbecue and whatever else we bring. Uh, but So we're going to celebrate on that day uh, by spending that time together. And then the next weekend will be our Two Languages, One Faith Sunday, where we'll worship together in English and Spanish, share a potluck lunch after Sunday morning worship, and celebrate 10 years of being together as God's people, speaking English and Spanish in our church family. So a big celebration for us coming up. Let us know if you have any questions about that. We hope you can be part of that with us. Let's have our prayer together, and then we'll jump into our lesson for the morning. God, thank you so much for your blessings. We know you're the giver of all good things. We know that everything we have that is good comes from you. Lord, help us to open our eyes uh, to those good things, to our blessings, and to always give you thanks for them. God, we're thankful today for bringing Miss Anna to us. We're thankful that uh, she's here. We're thankful that uh, she's part of our church family. We appreciate her love for you and love for your church. Lord, I pray we can all encourage each other and serve alongside one another for many years to come. God, we're thankful for all the good things you blessed us with in this church family. Help us to serve you as best we can. Help us to shine our light for you. Help us to encourage one another in fellowship. Lord, we want to be who you want us to be. And please, Lord, guide us in that way. God, as we study together today, I pray that everything that is said will be exactly what you want to be said. And I pray that our faith will grow from it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here in August, as our young people are going back to school and getting their minds thinking again, putting on their thinking caps again, we're trying to do the same thing in some of our Sunday morning lessons. So we've titled this series, a simple three-part series, Reason to Believe. And what we're studying here is the field of Christian evidences. And there is a, the classic, there are three classic Christian evidences topics that people talk about. Why Christians believe in God, why Christians believe in the Bible, why Christians believe in Jesus Christ. And so those are the ones we're giving overviews of. If you have further questions, want more resources about any of these, we will point you toward them. We are Christians because we have thought through the evidence. A Christian, the, the reason the Christian faith uh, has done as well as it has with the help of God, in part, is because people have, they realize there's, there's something behind this. Uh, there is truth behind this. And so last Sunday, we looked at why Christians believe in God. If you want to uh, go back to what we talked about there, you can... Uh, see some of those thoughts online or ask us privately. But this morning we're going to spend our time studying why do Christians believe that the Bible is the Word of God? So let's start with that very thing. Let's start with the claim that the Bible itself presents to us. The biblical books claim to be written by God's guidance. So as you read through the Bible, you find things like, Jeremiah says, the Lord told me to write, and he writes. John, as he starts the book of Revelation, says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And he begins writing. 
The phrase, thus says the Lord, I have not counted them, but I am told it is about 3,000 times in the 66 books of Scripture. You'll find that phrase, thus says the Lord. Over and over and over, the Bible claims God is behind this. And some of the passages that we often look at that say this perhaps most clearly, 2 Timothy 3.16, Brody read this for us just a second ago, says all Scripture is inspired by God. And you might have noticed the translation Brody was reading from said all Scripture is God-breathed. And that's exactly what that phrase literally means. God breathed the words of Scripture through the writers. Now, he still used their personalities because you can tell that. You can see that Paul writes differently than John writes, who writes differently than Matthew writes. So he uses their personalities. But the Holy Spirit breathes through them exactly what he wanted them to write. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 is another passage that I think says this clearly. He says, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It was not an act of human will. People didn't sit down and say, you know what, I'm going to write Scripture today. No, the Holy Spirit spoke through them what He wanted to be said. And they sat down and wrote. And then one more, this happens a few times in Hebrews. And I think it just, to me, is a, is a great example of what people believed was happening here. What I believe was happening as well. Hebrews 3, 7, he quotes from the Old Testament. You see the all caps there in the New American Standard. It's a quote from the Old Testament. And look how he introduces it. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice. He didn't say, just as, he could have said, just as the Psalms say. That, that would have been fine. But he makes clear, it wasn't just the Psalms. That was the Holy Spirit. And, it, and you notice that word says is a present tense verb. The Holy Spirit continues to speak through those words that He inspired people to write down. So over and over, the Bible says, this is not just from people, this is from God. But of course, the question then comes, well, just because it says it doesn't mean that it is. And that's true. I could, I could write something down and give it to you and say, hey, this is from God. That doesn't mean it's actually from God. So why do we believe it's from God? Well, first, let's start with a question people often ask. Before we even get to, to that, why we believe it's from God, do we really have what they wrote? That's a question that comes up a lot of times. We have religious friends and neighbors. If you have any friends with a Muslim background, for example, they've probably been told their whole life, you can't really trust the Bible. It's been copied so many times. It's been messed up through the years. We don't really know what, what it originally said. Um, I think anyone who really digs into it uh, will find that that's not true. In fact, here's what I think you'll find, the bottom line, and I'll explain some of these things. If you look at the manuscripts, the copies that we have, and there's lots of them, they show that the biblical books have been faithfully copied for us. Now, why do we believe that? There are thousands upon thousands of copies of the New Testament. We don't have the actual first letter Paul wrote. What we have is thousands of copies. In fact, the number right now, and it grows because we continue to find them from time to time, over 5,700 copies of at least pieces of the Greek New Testament. 5,000. Now, that is, that is a lot. Any other ancient writing doesn't come close. Uh, we believe we have what Homer wrote in the Iliad and the Odyssey. He's only got a handful, nine or ten copies of, of what Homer wrote. Any ancient writing has, has nothing compared to the amount of evidence we have for the New Testament. Um, but then someone says, someone says, well, 
if there's these copies, you know, you copy to a copy to a copy, then maybe it's like the telephone game. That's what the critics say. Maybe it's like the telephone game that you played in school where someone says a phrase and you pass to the next person, you pass to the next person, and by the time you get to the end, it has nothing to do with what the first person said. And we all laugh because we know it's not close. Let me give a few reasons why the copies of, that we have of the Bible are not anything like the telephone game. Uh, number one, this was written down. This wasn't just whispered in someone's ear and you only get to say it once because we want to see how... It, th this was a written down uh, thing that people put together. It's a lot easier to keep that together when it's written down. You're not having to go from memory. Uh, it's also not like the telephone game because as people wrote this down, they believed they were writing something that was from God. If I handed you something and, and you and I both honestly believe this is what God gave us, make a faithful copy of it, I think you'd take some pretty good care to do that. I would. I would. And that's what people were doing. They were making, taking care to make copies. Another way it's different is when you play the telephone game, you go one person to one person to one person, and if, and if some kid in the middle of the game decides he wants to mess it up to be funny, he can because it's just, it's just a single line. That's not the way the copies of the Bible went. You had copies going every direction. People are trying to faithfully copy this. Thousands all over the Roman Empire. And so if someone, let's say somebody of power, decided, I want to change the Bible. I want it to say what I want it to say. You couldn't do it if you tried. Because there's copies all over the place. They're, they're everywhere. We find them. We would see what you've changed. And so there are things that, that you find in all the thousands of copies. Uh, what, I, what you will find is none of them change any element of Christian doctrine. There, there's nothing that has changed. You'll find, okay, was this sentence actually here or did someone add this? And people debate those things. But nothing different of Christian doctrine is there. In fact, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls that perhaps you, we've all heard about uh, started being found in 1947. And what critical scholars said was, hey, these are copies of the Old Testament years before our earliest copies, uh, in some cases a thousand years before our earliest copies. And what they expected to find was, since these are so much earlier than the copies we have, I bet we're going to see just how different it is from that copy to this copy. And you know what they found? There's not differences. There's, there's the same small little, was this sentence here? Was that word here? There's that stuff. But this had been faithfully copied. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls have become an element of faith to people who believe in the Bible to show us just how faithfully these books have been copied. In fact, even skeptics of Christianity, when they study this, they come out and say, no, we, we have what was written. That, that's not what they would disagree with on Christianity. They look at these copies, they see how faithfully it's been copied, and they say, that's, that's legit. We have what these people wrote. So that's a question that sometimes comes up before we can even get to the main question. Uh, if you're interested in that, want, want some resources toward that, I'm happy to help you, uh, point you in the right direction on some of that stuff. But that's something people sometimes ask. Let's spend the rest of our time then. Some reasons we trust it. So we have what they wrote. I think we'll spend more of our time on these first two and then roll through those last three. But here's some reasons that I think are all worth talking about why Christians believe the Bible is really from God. Number one, this is a big one for a lot of people. It's a big one for me too. The Bible's predictive prophecy. The Bible makes predictions that people could not have made. Not just vague predictions, not just right 50% of the time, uh, not 
not Nostradamus type stuff that you might have heard about on the History Channel years ago where a great ruler will rise. Okay, I think I could do that one. <laughs> There's not, not, vague, not vague stuff, but specific things that happened years in advance. Things that people just can't do. Um, and there's lots of these. There's prophecies about Babylon, which was like the, the most powerful city of the day, that it would be destroyed, which was a crazy thing to say in a world that didn't have nuclear warfare, that, that the city would just be wiped out. It was the most powerful, biggest city in the world. And it happened. There's prophecies about the city of Tyre that Alexander the Great did. But let me put a few before you that we've talked about some this year here at Great Oaks as we've been talking about our, uh, our theme of let us arise and build and how the people of Israel came back home after going into captivity uh, near the end of the Old Testament. Jeremiah 29.10, you might remember, as the children of Israel were going into captivity, Jeremiah says, When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you, fulfill my good word to you, to bring you back to this place. Now, if he's just trying to be smart, that's a ridiculous thing to say. Because when you went into captivity, you didn't come back. In fact, the northern kingdom of Israel, they went into captivity to Assyria, never came back. But Jeremiah says, not only will you come back, but you will come back in 70 years. He names the time. And you know what? Guess what happened? In 70 years, they're starting to come back home. And 70 years from when the temple was destroyed, the temple was finished being rebuilt. Um, That's a crazy thing to say if you don't have God behind it. Even crazier than that to me, Isaiah 44, 28, if you're keeping the outline, is worth writing down. Isaiah's writing even before Jeremiah. And he's looking 150 years into the future when the captivity hasn't even happened yet. And he says he names the person who's going to let them come back from captivity. He says, It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, She will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. And I've often thought when those, after 150 years later, that's a long time, 150 years later, when when Babylon is conquered by the Medes and Persians and the Mede and Persian leader is named Cyrus, I can't help but think that the Jews thought, I cannot believe this. This is exactly what Isaiah said would happen. And Cyrus, just like Isaiah said, said, you guys can go back to Jerusalem. Go rebuild your temple. That's a crazy thing to say for anybody to say. And he predicts it, and it happens exactly like God says it's going to happen. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, you just write down Daniel chapter 2. I'm not going to read it. What Daniel does, he, he predicts the, the four big kingdoms that would come before the kingdom of God, before the church would be established. In fact, it's so good that skeptics say there's no way Daniel could have actually written that. But that had to have been written later. The problem is our copies, our evidence says Daniel wrote it. And he, and he predicts which kingdom was going to come and what was going to come after it. Uh, and he says, and then that fourth kingdom, that's when God's going to set up his kingdom, uh, which is when Jesus would come. And then just write down prophecies about Jesus Christ. I understand there's over 300. I haven't counted them all. Uh, there, but Jesus fulfills every single prophecy about him in the Old Testament. Uh, whether there's 300, whatever there is, there, there's a guy who did a... A statistical analysis a few years ago, his, guy, his name was Peter Stoner. He wrote in the magazine Science Speaks. He took eight prophecies from the life of Jesus. Things like he was born in Bethlehem, he was preceded by a messenger, uh, he was betrayed by a friend, they pierced his hands and feet, just eight things. 
Just those eight took the probability that any one person in history could fulfill all eight of those things. Because a lot of those things you got no control over. He found that the probability of anybody fulfilling all eight was 1 in 10 to the 17, which is a 1 with 17 zeros. Here's how he described it in the article. He said if you covered the entire state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep, and one of them was marked with like a, an X on it, you blindfold yourself, you can walk anywhere you want to go and pick one. He said that's the chances of that happening, and you finding the marked one. That's the chances of anybody doing that. And Jesus fulfills not only just those eight, he fulfills hundreds of them. The Bible predicts things that we can't, with all our technology, we struggle with the weather. We struggle with who's going to win the ball game. Like there's, there's, there's all sorts of things we just can't get. Um, the Bible predicts things people can't do. Number two, the Bible's accuracy. The Bible does not claim to be predicting things that happened in some land far away in, or in a galaxy far away. The Bible says these things happen in real time and real space in our world. And as far as those things can be tested, the Bible's found to be true. The field of archaeology very often is even funded by people who have a Bible-believing background because they have seen these things are proven to be true. You go dig in these places where the Bible says things happen and you find that these things happen, just as the Bible predicted. Just a couple of these. 2 Chronicles 32.30 tells us that King Hezekiah built these... He stopped the water and directed the water through a water tunnel into the west side of the city of David of Jerusalem. You and I could go to Jerusalem today, and you know what we'd find? We'd find Hezekiah's tunnel. And there's even little signs that explain this is the tunnel that Hezekiah built as the army was approaching. Hezekiah did all these things, um, and, and you can have some archaeology. I apologize, my picture is a little um, pixelated there, but you can find that these things actually happen. There's a guy named Sir William Ramsey. This has always been interesting to me. He lived in the late 1800s. And Sir William Ramsey is an archaeologist. He's, he, he's interested in ancient things. And he grew up in a time where people just said all the time, you can't really trust the things in Acts. Acts is full of, of mistakes. It's just full of inaccuracies. And people just said that. And so Sir William Ramsey decides, you know what? I'm just going to prove that once and for all. That, that Acts is full of mistakes. And so he starts digging into the history of all the places. Because Acts, you might know, is with Paul's missionary journeys... Acts tells about 32 different countries, 54 different cities, 8 Mediterranean islands, 95 different people and their positions. And people just said, you know what, That's just, they just messed up a lot of stuff. There was just too many details. And so he goes out to prove that. And you know what he decided as he really dug into all the evidence? This was his conclusion. You may press the words of Luke to a degree beyond any other historians, and they stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. In other words, Luke had it exactly right in everything he said. That's what he decided. He goes in to disprove it, but as he's studying it, he realizes, wait, this is exactly what they called their leader in Corinth, for example. This is exactly the name of that island and where it is, according to what Acts says. And that's what he says here. I put it up here on the screen. Further study of those chapters shows it could bear the most minute scrutiny as an authority for the facts of the Aegean world. Uh, it goes on to say it's, its perception of truth is a model of historical statement. As far as you can push the Bible, as far as we can see the evidence, uh, the Bible's found to be true. 
The Hittite kingdom is interesting to me because it was another thing that people just said for years and years. There's no evidence of the Hittites. The Bible says there's Hittites. There's no evidence for the Hittites. Well, guess what they found? They found a huge library of Hittite writings. And now no one says that the Bible's wrong on the Hittites. As the evidence has come out, the Bible is always found to be true. Let me just mention one more, then we'll go to the next thing. Um, the same is true of Jesus. There was a time where it was sort of trendy to say, well, there's no evidence for Jesus outside the Bible. People don't say that anymore if they've studied it. Because if you, you can look through Greek and Roman historians, there's all sorts of evidence for Jesus outside of the Bible. In fact, if we didn't have the Bible, we could put together uh, a lot of what people thought about Jesus just from the outside sources. And so there is an accuracy to Scripture as far as you can press it that I don't think people could do this on their own. Number three, this one may surprise some people. Another reason Christians believe this really is from God. There is a fit with science that doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless God was behind it. And you say, wait a second, I thought, I thought that's one of the big criticisms today is that, is that science has a problem with Scripture. And there are things today. One of the things people say all the time today is the age of the earth disproves the Bible. I, I think if we look into those things, maybe we'll have a lesson on that sometime. I think you'll find the, the ways that people try to measure those things are not near the put-it-in-the-calculator type of thing that I think I was taught it was growing up in school. Um, but that's, the, that's our generation's thing people say, that, well, the age of the earth sort of proves the Bible's wrong, and I, I don't believe it does when you dig into that. But there is a fit with science. Let me mention a few things here that you'll find people, uh, people say here. Number one, there's a lot of mistakes the Bible does not make that everyone else seemed to make in the times the Bible was written. Things like um, how the earth, is the earth round and is it floating in space? The ancient Egyptians, for example, taught that the earth sat on five pillars. I don't know if they believed that, but that's what they taught. People taught that the stars were their ancestors who were looking down upon us. Uh, many people taught that the earth was the center of the universe. And if you've heard that the Catholic Church... Um, persecuted Copernicus for thinking differently. Uh, I understand that to be true, but they were not representing Scripture on that because the Bible does not say that the earth is the center of the universe. I don't know if people ever thought the earth was flat. People debate that, actually. But if they did, the Bible doesn't make that mistake. The Bible does not say the earth is flat. Uh, the Bible speaks of the earth in ways that are true to science. Another way the Bible fits with science, there's a book written by two doctors, it's sort of an older book now, but it's called None of These Diseases. And what they did, they looked at the law of Moses, the Old Testament law of Moses. And what they found was, if they just followed those things, that would have kept them from getting all these diseases that the rest of the world would... And it was simple things like if someone's sick, they need to go outside the camp and be away from people and then be checked to see if they can come back in. It was simple things like burying your waste appropriately outside the camp. And that may sound simple to you and I, but these are things that people just a few hundred years ago in the Middle Ages, they were still messing up. They say that the Black Plague in Europe was caused by people just throwing their waste out in the street. And so they went through this and said if they would have followed these things, they would be healthier. Well, did Moses just make that stuff up? Or was God giving them the best way to handle this stuff? Uh, one other one that has always stood out to me, and then we'll move on. Genesis 17, verse 12. When God institutes circumcision, which we still circumcise uh, males today because there's health benefits to it. How, how did they know that back in 1400? Well, 
Abraham's even before that, back in 1800 B.C. How, how does Abraham know that circumcision has health benefits? And even deeper, how does he know that the eighth day is the perfect day to have a surgery on a small child before they had the medical things that we have? Because here's what we found. You know, today we can, we can have minor surgeries on children almost as soon as they're born. Um, but in those days, they didn't have that. And what you'll find is vitamin K helps blood clot. And there's something called prothrombin that produces vitamin K. And the only day of our lives on which our prothrombin is above 100% of normal is day eight. Now, how in the world, how in the world does it, in 1800 BC, do they just know that's the perfect day for surgery on a newborn child? I think God's behind that. And so there's a, there, there are science things in Scripture, too, that you say, the Bible's right about that. It doesn't make a lot of mistakes others would make. Number four, these last two will roll through pretty quickly, but I think they're, they're worth mentioning as you have this discussion and think down this thought. Jesus taught it was from God. If you believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and I do, we'll talk more about Jesus next week, why we're so convinced Jesus is the Son of God. Um, he believes Scripture is really from God. Let me put a few verses up here. Matthew twenty-two forty-three. 43, he quotes David. doesn't just say it's David, though. David in the Spirit prophesied about Jesus is what he's talking about here. John 10, 35. He doesn't just say they, they wrote in the law. He says the Word of God is what they were writing. It came to them and they wrote it down. Matthew 5, 18. Jesus says not the smallest letter or stroke would fall from the law. How, how much did Jesus trust Scripture? The smallest letter or stroke, he says. You can trust it to that degree. And then one more, John 14, 26. Jesus tells his apostles, I'm sending you the Holy Spirit, and you will remember and write what I have said and done. And he'll teach you new things that you need to know as you go. And so Jesus' teachings affirm that Scripture really is from God. And then number five, last one I've got this morning. There is a unified theme in Scripture. And that's interesting in itself, over 66 books I think there's 40 different authors or so in the, in the Bible, and yet they're all unified in what they say, and what they say resonates with what we experience in the world. In other words, the Bible says we're made in the image of God, and, and we see that. We see the goodness in people. But the Bible also says there is sin and, and choice, and we see that evil side of the world as well. The Bible says we're not here forever, and that our spiritual side lives on. We, we see that in the world. We feel that in the world. The Bible says there's something bigger than this. We feel that in our lives. Uh, one reason people are convicted by Christianity is it resonates with reality, uh, the reality that God gave us. And so that's another reason. Um, I'd like to say more about that, but I've already gone too long. That's another reason that I, I think people have always believed in Scripture. I'm sure there are things I have not said. I'm sure there's something I haven't said as well as I should have. If you have thoughts, questions afterwards, let me know. You're always good about that, and I appreciate it. Um, but let me know if there's something that you'd like to look into further. If you'd like, you know, Tim, you said this. What, what was the guy, or, or, or where could I look to read more about that? Let me know. I'd be glad to point you in this direction. We don't believe in the Bible just, just to do it. We believe there are strong reasons to think that God really gave these words. So let's end with, what do you do with that? A final verse to write down, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Paul says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus said, 
For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Paul says, I'm thankful that when you heard what we taught, you didn't just take it like this is just a person talking. You received it what it is, the words of God. And not only is it the Word of God, what does it do at the end of that verse? It does something in us. It changes us. If this really is the Word of God, and I believe it is, that calls us to put our life into it, doesn't it? It calls us to take it seriously. It calls us to, to stop ignoring it and stop putting it off and stop saying, I'll get to it one day. It, it deserves more attention than we sometimes give it. So let's, let's put our life into it. Let's end with that challenge. God gave us His Word. He has not left us empty and not knowing what the world's all about. He has given us His Word. Let's put our life into it. And you know what it does? What it's always done. It will perform its work in us. It will transform us for good. For what is really, truly good. God living in us. If you're not living for God this morning, we hope you will. We hope you'll make whatever changes need to be made. With the help of God, with the help of God's people, uh, to give your life to the Lord. If you're not a Christian today, I think you'll find this is what the Bible describes as how you become a Christian. I've always heard the simple steps put out, hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. I think you'll find that's a faithful representation of what they did in the New Testament. So I ask you this morning, what of those have you done? If you don't feel like you know enough about Jesus, start studying. We'd love to sit down with you and start having a Bible study about what the Bible says about Jesus and becoming a Christian. Let us know. Have you believed in Jesus? Have you made the commitment that the Bible calls repentance to, to turn your life around? And when you're ready to make that commitment, what they did in the Bible, they confessed that Jesus was the Lord, the Son of God, and they were baptized in water for forgiveness of their sins. If you'd like to talk about any of that, let us know afterwards. But we're about to sing a song of invitation. And during this song, it's an opportunity for anybody to come to the front to let us know as a church family about any step of faith you'd like to take. If you're ready to become a Christian this morning, we'd love to see you do that. If you have anything you'd like us to pray about, we'd love to pray for you. If we can help you in any way this morning, you're invited to come to the front now while we stand and while we sing.